Voice of America, Washington, D.C., signing on. When the Santa's Welcome to another episode of Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org, Brushbeater Training and Consulting, and hosted by me, the number one best-selling author of The Gorilla's Guide to the Balfang Radio, NC Scout. And it is very good to be with you on this Thursday afternoon, and I am sitting down with Matt of Knightsbridge Research. We're going to be talking the global picture. China, Europe, Ukraine, Saudi Arabia, the Fed, economics, heavy hitting stuff that is definitely going to be affecting us here at home and in the very near future. Of course, quick shout out to the show's sponsors, Civil Defense Manual, civildefensemanual.com, two volume set, Jack Lawson's book. Uh, Great work over there. I wrote the communications chapter for that book, and it literally takes you from zero to 100 on getting a neighborhood protection team stood up from the ground up. Of course, Horve Morvik show over on TNTradio.com. Horve Morvik's a great friend of mine and a wonderful podcast host, radio show host, and does incredible work over on TNTradio.com. Of course, you can get those podcasts on Podbean, Spotify, uh, and literally anywhere else that you receive your podcasts. TacticalWisdom.com, my frequent partner in thought crime, Mr. Joe Dolio with his four-volume set for sale on Amazon, as well as his own site, and that is tacticalwisdom.com. Last, certainly not least, Blacksmith Publishing. My good friends who are also the men behind the Pinelander podcast, and I've got some episodes, uh, some new interviews that I did with them that are going to be upcoming very soon. We talked uh, about economics. We've talked about a uh, little bit about privacy, security, anonymity in the digital age, as well as communications. And you can look for those episodes upcoming in the next couple of months. Uh, but anyhow, circling back to today's episode, Matt from Knightsbridge Research. Welcome back, brother. Hey, thanks. It's great to be back with you. Yeah, man. It's... Uh, Boy, the world is is really an interesting place. You've got, of course, the the headline news of the day, the leaked 
Ukrainian documents, the uh, we'll call it Ukraine Gate. Uh, and, you know, it, it this, of course, I knew that they were going to, uh, quote unquote, find this leaker because he leaked things that didn't necessarily go along with the approved narrative. Unlike the other leakers in recent memory, the Supreme Court being one of them, uh, which we still don't know who that was. Much smaller pool of people, of course. Uh, we, we have this uh, Department of Defense leaker that has now uh, been exposed, and we're going to be diving a little bit more into that in a later episode because there's a lot of ground to cover with that. But the important takeaway from all this is, is that the global picture at the most elite level, at the decision-making level, the strategic level, is getting to be kind of a dangerous place. There's a lot of uncertainty happening in governmental circles right now. Um, there's a lot of fear, I would say, and for a good reason, for a good reason. The, uh, the strength of the ruble, of course, we, we imposed sanctions on Russia. Russia became the most sanctioned country, I think, ever in, in economics. And, oh, their economy is going to implode. Of course, the Peter Zehans of the world said, oh, their economy is going to implode. They're never going to make it. They, they, they're in the middle of, they're going to have a civil war. They're in the middle of this color revolution that's going to happen there. Putin is such a big, mean, evil guy. He's going to get overthrown. None of that has come to pass. And in fact, we have done the reverse. The ruble has never been stronger and since they were sanctioned as heavily as they were, they began to create a parallel economy. Well, the groundwork for that parallel economy had already been created with BRICS. This is something that uh, longtime listeners of Radio Contra know because I've talked about in depth that this is a uh, clear and present danger to the hegemony of the United States dollar as well as the United States. And because of the dynamics of that, that economy, on, on the world stage. When that money begins to get repatriated back here at home, this is going to create a, a very uh, serious crisis. If you think inflation is bad now, this has the potential to get much, much worse and spiral out of control very quickly. Further, further, and I would say probably even worse, compounding the situation is the fact that our ability to levy uh, our, our power, essentially, by levying sanctions, by uh, enforcing our edicts as, as a unipolar world, is really coming to an end. And what's going to happen when those world powers, be, the other world powers that are competing for the space left behind by the United States as we continue that trajectory of decline, What's going to happen when they sanction us here at home, when they sanction the United States government? That's something that I think a lot of people haven't put much thought into, and that's what we're going to be discussing today. So essentially, with that framework in mind, how do you see all of this beginning to unfold? Essentially, give us a sit rep for where we are right now. Yeah, there's a man, there's about 15 hours of discussion wrapped up in that <laughs> that we could uh, that we could roll through uh, pretty easily. 
so I'll, I'll let my wife know that I'll be, uh, I'll be available tomorrow. Um, taking it from the top, really, just from an overall strategic perspective, right? So you mentioned the, you know, the U.S. dollar a couple of times in there and kind of the currency issues. Um, it, it is certainly true that a lot of nations around the world primarily nations that are uh, not particularly aligned with the U.S., um, are attempting to sign the, these agreements to allow trade to be settled in the local currencies, right? Um, you've seen that between India and Myanmar. You've seen it between China and a handful of countries. Um, China and Chile have had that agreement for a very long time, actually. Um, so these are all uh, attempts to move trade away from the almighty dollar. Um, right now, it's around 60% of global trade is settled in USD. Um, that is trending down slowly over time. Um, it was up in the 80% range decades ago. So it is, it's a pretty slow trend. Um, but what you're seeing is you're seeing coordinated attempts to accelerate that trend away from USD. Um, now, it's not necessarily immediately successful in any case. Right. There's not a single case that you can point to globally where you can say, hey, these these two countries signed agreements to uh, settle trade in local currencies. And it was immediately wildly successful. There is no case out there. But what you're seeing is coordinated attempts among governments trying to push companies and traders and individuals into that system. Now, typically what you see is not resistance at the governmental level. Typically what you see is resistance by those companies themselves, by these international companies. Because if you're Brazil, for example, you're a Brazilian firm and you accept uh, Yuan for settlement, well, you may turn around and, and you need to trade with Argentina. You need to trade with Nigeria. You need to trade with Canada. So what you end up doing is you end up converting Yuan back into USD and then trading with those other, other countries. So right now, there isn't a framework that these massive international companies are comfortable using outside of the USD. So what you're seeing is attempts to provide additional legitimacy to these governments, such as Brazil, China, India, et cetera, where these traders and companies feel comfortable using those currencies for trade. That is a massive long-term process. That is not something that, that happens in a couple of years. Um, it's something that takes a, a decade or more. Now, right now, when you look around the world for these, for these, you know, these massive companies and most nations, um, when it comes to full faith and credit of a government, they tend towards the United States. Not because we're doing a great job, because we're not economically, financially, monetarily, I would argue that we're doing a very poor job. It's just that we're doing a slightly better job than everyone else. And we're the default, right? So it's easy to go back to, to the default method. So something's going to have to happen more significant than mere agreements being signed to things like that for these massive international companies and traders and central banks of other nations even to say, uh-oh, the USD is in real trouble. I would prefer you know, XYZ currency, or I would prefer a BRICS currency or a currency linked to a basket of commodities and precious metals, that kind of thing. And there's a lot of things, there are a lot of black swans out there flying around that, that could end up uh, having that impact. But at this point in time, just looking in the kind of in the near term, um, I, I'm seeing just kind of a slow slippage uh, in, in USD, not, not a cliff. But again, 
um, there's a uh, there's a guy that uh, that I follow pretty closely. He's in the investment world that says risk happens slowly and then all at once right? uh, over right. at Hedgeye. And, and that's true. He's absolutely right. And uh, Keith McCullough says that a lot over at Hedgeye. And, and he's absolutely right. Right now, risk is happening slowly. You're seeing agreements signed. And so then we are left to sit back and say, OK, where's the cliff? Right. But I am not quite as pessimistic as many are um, as far as the, the imminent fall of USD. Uh, give me a longer term time frame, 20, 30 years, and I'm very pessimistic, but not so much in the next couple of years. Now, if China goes after Taiwan and World War III kicks off, literally every bet is off at that point. If the right. war in Ukraine spreads into Europe, every bet is off at that point, too. Um, there's a lot of things that could happen that would change that. But but from where I sit right now, at least, and with my, you know, I did 10 years in the financial sector, uh, mostly in investing. Um, and so that's informing a lot of my opinions, just that experience. But um, I, I'm certainly not seeing doom in the next year or two, for sure. Um, but again, always the caveat, black swans. <laughs> so we'll circle back to... Taiwan and, and those developments sure. here in a second. But there's a lot of people out there that I think, uh, you know, my train of thought and in, in how I was kind of processing what you were saying. Where does Saudi Arabia fit into this? Because we know, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia has made several motions over the past 30 days that has more closely aligned them with trading in Yuan. And be, we, we essentially, I, I want to explain something to the audience. I know you know this, but I'm going to explain something to the audience. That being the world's reserve currency, that that the United States dollar is what oil is traded in. And so nations of the world have to buy dollars from the Fed in order to be able to purchase fuel for their countries. And so this is why economic sanctions have such a, uh, or I should say had at, at one point, Russia, of course, China, um, you know, to a certain degree, Libya, pre uh, the overthrow of Gaddafi began to uh, find fault with this system. Um, Venezuela, could there, there's a strong case that could be made for Venezuela as well. Um, th that they were able to challenge this system to varying degrees of success, and, and Russia successfully figured it out. Um, so with that said, Saudi Arabia and, and Saudi Aramco is a big piece of the puzzle. And with them now at least making more formal motions to align themselves more strongly, more closely into a partnership with the Chinese – I wouldn't necessarily say that this is one of those black swan events, but this is definitely increasing the the downward trajectory of, of the United States dollar. What do you what's your assessment on all of that, where that fits into this? Yeah, I, I wouldn't call that a black swan either because it's kind of in the exploratory phase right now. And, and Saudi Arabia and China have explored um, trading in the yuan going back off the top of my head, six or seven years. Um, and it really accelerated after uh, Xi went to Saudi Arabia and signed, the two countries signed some 80 different deals in uh, December last year, 2022. Um, so 
taking that into to consideration, I think it's really accelerated from there that they're discussing doing this um, going forward in the future. So right now it's about 80% of oil that's traded globally is traded in USD. Like you mentioned some of the countries that have found workarounds, right? The, the, the issue with Saudi Arabia is if they move to trade uh, in yuan, that I'm not sure how that's going to fly with the U.S. and the Saudi relationship, specifically because the agreement for Saudi Arabia to trade oil in dollars is directly tied to a previous security agreement signed decades ago. Right. Right. So they're going to be giving up their security agreement with the United States. If they move into a, if they move into trading oil and yuan, which means they're going to have to go directly to China uh, to to sign another security agreement, and and notably back in December, out of all the agreements that were signed, like pen to paper signed, not just discussed, none of them had anything to do with um, security or defense, and and Saudi Arabia retains those relationships with the U.S. But economics rule <laughs> and and economically, Saudi Arabia is is certainly pivoting toward China. Um, and so I think this is one of those things where I agree with you, it's not a black swan, but this is a bigger crack in the foundation. Right. Than a lot of the other cracks. Um, this is something that shows Saudi Arabia is leaning that direction. I think Saudi Arabia long term believes the U.S. is on, is, is in serious decline. And they see China as um, as up and coming. They see them as the resurgent power that's probably going to replace the current power at some point in the future. Um, they also see that China is more likely to invest in Saudi Arabia uh, and things like that. They also see that China has a no enemies policy in the Middle East, which they like. That's great for them, as opposed to some of the things that the U.S. has done that's that's uh, angered Saudi Arabian leadership and and things like that. The Iranian uh, nuclear deal, the Saudis were extremely upset by how the U.S. handled that. So there's a lot of cracks in the in the U.S. foundation, and a lot of them are emanating from our relationship with Saudi Arabia. And China's just taking advantage of that. Um, they're swooping in and they're promising investment and all this other thing. Um, I don't know that they're going to start trading oil in one anytime soon, maybe a small shipments here and there. I don't think they're going to wholesale switch until Saudi Arabia is willing to completely walk away from the United States. And that is their own calculus. I can't make predictions as to, to when that might happen. Um, if I did, you shouldn't listen to them because I don't think anyone knows that, but the Saudis, um, right. but that is, they're pivoting that direction in a concerning fashion and at a faster rate than I think most people thought they were going to. So definitely a, a, a crack forming there. That's concerning. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Uh, agreed 100%. And and one note about the Saudis is that, you know, we we tend to think of the Saudis and when I say we, you know, the the United States as a as a people as a, you know, uh kind of the 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 uh social psychology of it, if you will, is we kind of think of them as as one continuous nation, kind of like we do yeah. uh, you know, yeah any other nation that that we consider to be a functional uh democratic institution saudi arabia is not so and and they have uh of course they they have the royal family which is huge and your wealth in saudi arabia is determined by and, and your social status along with it is determined by your uh, proximity in the bloodline 
to the the Saudi royal family, but they have competing factions uh, in, inside of it. And those competing factions are aligned to competing political interests here in the United States as well. And I mean, you know, this isn't conspiracy theory. This isn't tinfoil hat. This isn't, you know, it, it, it this, this is all well documented. And, and I think uh, even though these facts have typically been pointed out in conspiracy theory circles uh, in, in the past, but this is, this is absolutely a fact. And, um, it, you know, th- there's a faction right now that is in control of Saudi Arabia. That's looking at the United States. Like you guys are rapidly auto delegitimizing and we don't see you just as you pointed out, we don't see you as a stable partner long-term. So we're hedging our bets. There could be another faction in Saudi Arabia, and I believe that there is, that would quickly be brought to power if they got a little too close with China. Um, and, and that other faction would, would end up being brought to power, uh, very much in a, a color revolution. Because I think that, that there's plenty of people in Saudi Arabia that have seen, um, you know, they, they essentially learned their lessons from the Arab Spring. And if you'll notice where Arab Springs, those those quote unquote mass protests, the, the color revolutions did not occur. It's very telling about where uh, Western and uh, United States led hegemony interests lie, uh, because that, that's, you know, it, it, it is what it is. Look at the map. Look at the map. Look who, who stood to gain. You know, those are the facts. Whether you love them, hate them, indifferent, doesn't matter. Those are the facts. Uh, and and uh, China and, of course, Russia as a partner with China now, they, they I, I would say that their relations have never been stronger than, than they are right now because we pushed them together. Uh, we did that. And so uh, with that said, the last thing I want to point out on that note, and, and, and then I want to pivot to uh, talking about Taiwan because it's it's critically important to do so. And there's so many factoids with that, is that something you pointed out, which is critically important, is that economic agreements have been made, but security agreements have not. Well, economic agreements are always made first. The security agreements is just how you protect your investments. And that's how wars start. Is I'm going to protect my investments. You're going to protect yours and ours are competing investments now. So, you know, we're going to go to war with one another. And that's quickly where we we are finding ourselves on that roadmap. So that brings us to Taiwan and and we're going to get back to Ukraine here in in, uh, just a few, but I really want to talk about Taiwan uh, first and foremost. So, you know, we have this uh, exercise that the People's Liberation Army Navy, which is the Chinese Navy, it's the Navy of the Communist Party of China, um, they have essentially practiced a blockade of Taiwan. They say it's not a, a blockade because it's it's not, you know, they, they're only practicing, quote unquote, right? Wink, wink, nod, nod. But this is what we are capable of doing when we want to do this for real. You mentioned that they are on a timeline and that we're on a timeline as well in terms of the buildup of military capability and um, 
you know, basically where, where we're headed. And, you know, we, we have that seven year window to be fully re-equipped, re-armed as we were before the kickoff, uh, the, the invasion of Ukraine, which led up to the handing off of major munitions uh, in, in, in the war effort uh, in Eastern Europe and in, in Ukraine and the buildup with NATO. So break down for us the current status of what's going on there and where you think that this is headed. Yeah, sure. So let me let me take this from the um, the Taiwanese side first, right? The the Taiwan and the nations that are aligned with Taiwan, right? So Japan, the U.S., South Korea, etc. Coming at it from that angle, here's what you're looking at as far as timeline is concerned. You're looking at Japan um, rebuilding and adding new munitions depots in the south, about triple what they currently have, and that's over the next five years. Japan is ordering uh, various types of uh, cruise missiles, Tomahawks. Um, they're ordering um, submarine launch ballistic missiles with a thousand kilometer range. Those are 2026, 2027 coming in. Um, you're looking at Taiwan has developed their own cruise missiles, homegrown. They have a 1200 kilometer range, which will reach to, to Wuhan in central China. Those are just now starting to be produced. You're looking at um, Taiwan's producing five new military drones. Those will be mass produced at the end of this year. Uh, you're looking at the U.S. just launched the USS Ford uh, aircraft carrier. It's now combat deployable. The Kennedy is supposed to be ready in 2025 um, based upon delays that we always get with aircraft carriers and subs. Maybe put that 2027, 2028. Um, you're looking at South Korea doing much of the same. South Korea is now mass producing military drones, or they will be very soon. You're looking at the AUKUS deal with Australia. You're looking at India uh, launching. Uh, they just launched a new homegrown nuclear sub. And you're looking at uh, you're looking at the Philippines. They just gave the U.S. Uh, additional EDCA bases. Uh, we're we're currently in the midst of the largest ever drills with the Philippines, with uh, 17,000 troops participating. So. And, you, uh, and then on top of that, you're looking at uh, officials from uh, Britain uh, coming over, going over to Taiwan and, and talking about defense. You're talking about uh, Canada. This was in our uh, hotspot report today. Canada and South Korea look like they're going to be signing some uh, joint intelligence deals. So all of these things are bad for China when it comes to Taiwan. Every single thing I just listed is, is a very negative thing. But none of them really come online until about 2026. On top of that, the Navy just directed Jassums and Tomahawks and all that. They want double the production, double the production um, starting in 2024, right? So the world is already looking towards China, Taiwan and kind of seeing what's coming here. And the actions that they're taking militarily certainly show that. So if you're China, you're looking at this entire scenario and say, you know, China's not necessarily ready. They don't, their lift, they certainly don't have the lift right now um, to, to go into Taiwan. But they're looking at the situation globally and they're looking at all these friendly nations to Taiwan and what they're doing to prepare for war in the Pacific. And if you wait until 2027, especially till 2028 or 2030, uh, you're, in a, you're in a much tougher spot militarily than you are, say, next year or the next couple of years. Um, so from that perspective, uh, Taiwan hopes that China 
waits until 2028 or 2030. That, that would be a best case scenario for Taiwan. Um, US will have hypersonics deployed by then, which we don't right now. Uh, a lot of things are going to be different in 2030 than they are right now in 2023. Um, you would also expect that the war in Ukraine would have either been concluded um, by the late 2020s or at least will have reduced itself down to where it's a kind of a minor insurgency, almost how Ukraine was after Crimea, right, in 2014. Just really low-grade conflict going on there. So the world would then have the ability to pivot away from Eastern Europe and toward the Pacific. So when you take all that into consideration, just from the US, Taiwanese, Japanese perspective, um, and I've only listed maybe 10% of the overall factors, right? Um, China is gonna be highly incentivized in my opinion and in our opinion to jump prior to the late 2020s. So what we have said for 18 months now um, to our private clients and to many others is that the window of time for China to um, go after Taiwan militarily is most open from late 2023 through 2025. And we have said that 50 times. <laughs> Sorry to our subscribers, because you see that phrase in a, in a hotspot report probably once or twice a week, but it's true and we have a lot of data to back it up. Um, we had some of our private clients in early 2022 who were saying it's happening. It's happening in the spring of 2022. And we just, we've consistently held that that's not the case. Um, so that's our that's when we think the window of time is most open, most favorable for China to make a move. Now, we do very much expect that the first move for China would be a blockade, not a full on invasion. Um, there is simply no need to take the risk of a full on invasion. Um, I, I would encourage everyone to go out and read the CSIS report called Empty Bins in a Wartime Environment. And uh, and they did another one, too, on kind of wargaming China and Taiwan. Those are good to look at. There's a lot of good stats in there. There's a lot of good detail on munition supplies and things like that. Um, obviously, I, I don't endorse everything that CSIS turns out, but those two reports are pretty solid. Um, so I would encourage folks to go take a look at those. They, they were good enough for us to do entire briefings on for our subscribers early in the year. Um, so looking at it from that perspective, you're going to see a blockade first, um, a lot of political coercion, things like that. Um, you're likely to see the next step being some kind of a decapitation strike if the blockade is not successful um, and, and it kind of uh, escalates from there. Right. But uh, I, I highly, highly doubt that one day we're going to we're going to wake up in the morning and China's invading Taiwan. That is not a good scenario. The risk reward is very low on that for China. Taiwan's ready for them. They've been ready for them for a long time. And you've got to strangle them first for a while. You got to take the oxygen off the island for a while in the form of uh, reduced fuel shipments, reduced food shipments, things like that, before Taiwan's gonna be coerced into doing anything with China. So blockade is absolutely top top uh, scenario, I think, for at least the opening move by China. And then essentially the ball is in, is in our court and in Japan's court of what do you do about it? And, and I think for China, China sees the US as a nation in decline. And China also sees Japan and South Korea and Australia and the Philippines as probably not going to do anything about it unless the U.S. does. Right. And so it, the ball is then in our court. And if we have a, a president, regardless of who that president is at, in that, at that time, who doesn't want to get involved in foreign wars, um, who maybe is uh, less of a hawk, more of a dove, uh, that kind of thing, or who just doesn't see the risk reward as being worth it. If we back down, then, then China takes Taiwan after a blockade. And that's it.
story's over because Taiwan will be in a situation where it's submit or starve, literally. Um, that island does not have years of food on it. It has very little fuel. 30 days into the war, they're out of gasoline and diesel, right? So they, they can't even run their Navy <laughs> after 30, maybe 40 days. Um, and, and that's it. It's over at that point. Um, the only thing that remains is for, uh, is, is the paperwork. Um, so that's fairly, some of that's detailed, some of that's big picture, but just overall from, from where I sit and we analyze this every single day and scrape up everything that there is to know on this topic, um, uh, outside of, uh, <laughs> top secret documents, of course, um, that, and that's kind of where we keep coming down. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you, you can get in a lot of trouble if you're the wrong political orientation. Hey, we and not we do not have a discord. People. We do yeah. not have a discord. We monitor a lot of discords. We don't have one, though. So <laughs> there's no nice <sighs> discords. <laughs> you know, I don't know. A little little piece of unsolicited advice for the audience out there. Um, Telegram and Discord. Big no-nos. Both of them. Both of them, big time no-nos. Stay away. Just you know, if you're monitoring somebody else's traffic, which you, you can't, there is a way to do that with Discord with with minimal, uh, to, you know, kind of minimizing your digital exhaust. There is not with Telegram. Um, you know, just just saying, and and you know, look. It, it, here, here's the deal with all that stuff. If if you do not have an explicit purpose there, if you're just BSing with your internet friends, I'm sorry. You know, yeah. No, you you're you're gonna hang yourself. And it's and stupid. That's absolutely. I agree with you a hundred percent. And you know, we monitor hundreds of Telegram channels and probably around a hundred discord channels as well. Um, but we don't have an official one and we don't use it for anything outside of official business. It's, it's going into monitor and to scrape and to pull things out. Right. Because uh, a lot of the benefit that our subscribers get shameless plug warning is that you don't have to go into those shady corners of the internet and try to figure out what's going on before it hits Twitter. Because that's where it goes first. It hits Discord and Telegram first, but those are some shady environments. Um, nope. You don't want to do that. We'll do it for you, though, and we do every single day. So, in shameless plug. Sorry about that. No, no <laughs> you hear you, you, you know, plug plug your products as much as you want, man. That you know, it, it don't bother me a bit. Uh, you know, because I'm I'm a big fan of what y'all do, but. Yeah, it, it's just unsolicited advice there. It yeah, is, if, that's if good advice. You're, you know, if, if you're of a like, we'll, we'll say like-minded mindset, you have to understand that, that you know, there's a lot of bug lights out there. And if you grew up in the South, like I did, you got them, the big neon blue lights. It's just cheap entertainment, right? You plug that thing in, you sit there and you watch the bugs fly right into it and get zapped. Yeah, yeah. There's corners of the internet that is that. And, you know, Discord might be fun for all your internet friends, but if they're on the internet exclusively and you you don't know that person in real life, hey, guess what? You know, you don't know who you're talking to. You do not know who you're really talking to. And that's just friendly advice. That, that you know, that's just a, a, a little bit of, um, 
you know, hey, it, it's it's if you aren't looking for it, and it, you know, I'll just leave it at that. I I, I want to get off that train because we've got we've got a lot of ground to cover here. But it, it's just, I'm telling you, this and and this is the first of of many incidents that that's going to arise from this, uh, from from the the leaking of uh, earmarked classified, um, possibly TSSCI stuff. Uh, but a- anyway, I, I'm not going to get into that, uh, right now, but I, I want to return to Ukraine or, uh, uh, Taiwan first and, and then circle back to Ukraine. So with Taiwan, I want to bring up another scenario, which I think is, is likely, of course, we, we just talked worst case scenario, uh, that would a blockade, an actual blockade that, that went beyond a military exercise, this is kind of the dress rehearsal for the uh, PLAN to see if they they can actually pull this off. And, and that's what war games are for is, is you know, it, it's going beyond the tabletop exercise to see if, if these things are actually possible. And we're actually going to do a dry run of moving the pieces on the board. This is what, you know, NTC in, in the Army, NTC, um, you know, uh, in the Marine Corps, 29 Palms, um, you know, Fort Polk, Louisiana, um, you know, for uh, Joint Readiness Training Center, JRTC. That's what these places are for, White Sands Missile Range uh, with, with uh, uh, Fort Bliss. That's what these, these places are for, is so that we can practice these things. And, you know, any, any competing power is, is going to do the same things. Uh, militarily that, that's what they're doing and and it's important to note too that the uh, the PLA in as a blue water navy meaning outside of its coastal protection areas is still a new concept for them and so they have a lot of um, they have a lot of uh, uh, experience that's coming by way of Russian advisors to that because you know the Admiral Kustinov is the prototype for uh, their aircraft carrier, and that, that's what they're using. Um, you know, so the, there's in the submarine fleet. You know, there's a lot of uh, stuff on the OSINT side that that I've been digesting, uh, talking about submarines and, and the major role that submarine forces are going to play versus surface forces. And if you look at the the amount of uh, naval spending that Russia has spent, that China has spent it's pretty easy to see where this, this is headed. And the Russians have very well seasoned and experienced sub crews. Um, we do as well. China, not quite as much, but you're seeing the development heading in that direction. Japan is, is placing a, uh, a, a, a very strong focus on uh, that capability, uh, submarine warfare. So they're seeing all of this, right? With Taiwan, what about option three? The I would say the least violent of the options because a uh, a full blown blockade would certainly put us on the pathway to war. Uh, there's no getting off that track, and I think that that China does not want that because that would end up being almost a zero sum game for them. Uh, you know, we would lose ships and, 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 you know, for everybody that, that is uh, armchair admiraling this stuff saying, oh, well, you know, they, they would end up losing this, this many. Well, we would too. And when's the last time we lost a capital ship 
Okay, an aircraft carrier, a cruiser, a destroyer. When when is the last time that we lost a major uh, vessel of war in combat? It's been a minute. It's been a minute, and and I don't think socially that our our military is already at, at at kind of the boiling point with a recruiting crisis and the, the quality of the personnel that that are in right now is is questionable as well. And I talk to a lot of people that are still in the military. Um, you know, I, I've been out for a hot minute now, but I saw the writing on the wall when I got out, and. It's it's gotten progressively worse, and you know, Jenny has two mommies, and you know the the uh, their recruiting efforts. The Secretary of the Army, of course, the Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin. Th- this, these people are not inspiring confidence in anybody at the street level, and that's why they have the recruiting crisis. If they were to lose, we'll say we'll, we'll say they lose a destroyer, right? The damage that that would do to the American psyche. You know, we almost lost USS Cole due to a terrorist attack. And and the United States socially was a very different place at the time. And the anger level was so high. But we had a strong sense of nationalism then. And, and you know, both on the, the Democrat side. And the Republican side, we had this, this, yeah, the, the traditional Democrats that were out there, the blue dog Democrats that, that were uh, still making up the, the strength of the Democrat Party. That is not so today. It's very clear to see that just in the, the reaction to uh, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s announcement that he's going to be seeking the Democrat nomination. I expect him to run as a third party candidate. I, I see that coming. Uh, but just the reaction from the mainstream Democrats. Uh, to him, and, and the Kennedys have been a, a Democrat, uh, they were the marquee brand of the Democrat Party for forever. So, you know, in, anyway, not, not to be on a tangent, but I would say that if, if for all the, the armchair admirals out there that say, oh, well, well, China would inevitably lose just based on the numbers and this, that, and the other, maybe, maybe so. Uh, I, it's not that I disagree, but what I would say is, is that the damage that would be done to us is, uh, you know, already in, in kind of the fragile social state that we're in. I'm not so sure that we would win, uh, that, that it, we may win the battle, but the, but it would be a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, yeah. so I think that China understands that as well from a pragmatic sense. They, they don't want their blue water Navy, their brand new blue water Navy, by the way, to be, uh, crushed immediately by a waning world power they're 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 more pragmatic than that they're more strategic than that and so i would say what if just what if and and bouncing this this scenario off of you we know that that the ccp has been courting the kmt they they're currently not the, the party in power and they've been courting them to be less than adversarial. And I think that this is ironic because the, the KMT is the party of Chiang Kai-shek, which is the, the founder of Taiwan. And, uh, you know, were, were the adversaries in the Chinese civil war against the Chinese communist party. So I find it fascinating that, that they are now, uh, at least on speaking terms. What if, what if, and, and this is purely academic, 
But if the KMT were brought back to power by, we'll say, a color revolution in reverse, maybe a, an uprising, a mutiny in the ranks of the ruling party of, of Taiwan in Taipei, and the KMT comes back to power and they normalize relations with the CCP, that would be a winning situation. And I think that that would be one that the pragmatic thinkers in D.C., because there are some pragmatic thinkers up there, this would be the the way off the road to war, to all-out war, which would be very much a zero-sum game for everyone. I do see that as a possibility. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, from a from a perspective of taking that as an academic exercise, I would say, so Taiwan has elections in early 2024, January off the top of my head, um, I believe. Um, right now, the uh, the KMT is, uh, man, they, they've got a, they've got a real hill to climb to win that, that race. Um, the current president is terming out the vice president uh, appears to be the one who's going to be running for that, um, for the presidency and for 2024. Um, here's the thing about that is that younger folks in Taiwan are really proud of being Taiwanese. They do not affiliate themselves with China anymore. And when you get into the older demographics, it's about 50, 50. When you get into younger demographics, it's like 80, 20. And again, this is off the top of my head, you know, go, go find a poll, but, but, uh, um, no, you're exactly what I'm remembering, right. right. And, knowing, and so knowing some Taiwanese folks, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. you, that they are there. I would say that their, their, uh, sense of national. I'm back. I don't know what that was all about. Hey, welcome back. Had, a, had an epic fail on this end. Uh, <laughs> it, it was it was totally me. It was like, hey, did I, did I lose you? Um, and then, bam, I don't know what happened. But what essentially what I was saying is is, is that uh, the, the psychology of of uh, the Taiwanese mm-hmm. is analogous to uh, Cubans. You know, expatriated Cubans. They're living here in the yeah. United States. Yeah. I, I mean, agree. they 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 are fiercely pro freedom, mm-hmm. and you know, I I think that 
you know, it, it's it's similar. So anybody that's that's familiar with, you know, Cuban culture of, of South Florida um, and, and their pride, it's very, very similar. Very, very similar culture. Yeah. And, and you know, kind of going back to that scenario that you were laying out, I, I don't think that it's completely impossible for the KMT to come into power in politics. Nothing is impossible. Um, but it's a very, very heavy lift. I'll put it that way. Um, you would basically have to have a sea change of sentiment inside of Taiwan, um, particularly among the youngest uh, half of, of Taiwanese adults. Um, so there would have to be some kind of, of cataclysm or <laughs> uh, something really, really significant would have to happen to change the sentiment. Because it's not that uh, so many Taiwanese are uh, very anti-China. It's that that is a long-term trend that has only accelerated in recent years. So what you're looking at is you're looking at a situation where not only do you have to slow the trend, then you have to reverse it. Then it has to be such a significant reversal that it happens in less than a year before those elections. And uh, like I said, I believe January um, 2024. So it's anything's possible. But um, I do think that it's very, very unlikely. Um, I think the most likely scenario is that the KMT uh, remains uh, the secondary party there in Taiwan, despite Chinese efforts. Um, China will certainly continue its uh, media efforts inside of Taiwan. Um, and I think that that's something that uh, we should expect. But, but overall, and especially as you see Chinese aggression kind of continuing um, to grow. Um, I think that uh, Taiwan is going to elect a government that they believe will best protect them against Chinese uh, aggression. Um, now, the interesting thing, too, about that is that um, as Taiwan continues to draw closer to uh, Japan, South Korea, the U.S., et cetera, kind of that entire block of, of nations, um, you're, what you're seeing is that uh, a lot of Taiwanese are moderately in favor of that, but you could overstep the bounds, right? Where Taiwanese are very pro-freedom and they're not necessarily likely to want to sign uh, binding agreements with other nations where Taiwanese soldiers are now gonna have to go defend other countries, right? Taiwan doesn't want a NATO situation. Uh, they want a situation where they can continue to sell semiconductors into the West and the West helps protect them, right? Along with Japan, South Korea, et cetera. Um, so overall, uh, KMT probably not looking so hot <laughs> for these next elections. Um, Taiwan just wants to be free. The overwhelming sentiment uh, in all of the polling is freedom over all else. And so that's what they're, they're seeking to do is they're trying to make um, not necessarily alliances, but uh, sign defense agreements and become very friendly with countries that they believe will help them stay free. Um, so. Big, big picture there, some detail, but mostly big picture. That, that's kind of where I see that whole scenario uh, right now. Yeah, I agreed. And I, I, that's, that's a, a very good look at their future politically. And, and, you know, I don't think that we're getting off of the war footing that, that Taiwan is, is very much a, um, a, a critical ally, and, and that's a focal point of American foreign policy. And, and as soon as that folds up, uh, however it breaks down, um, 
it it's that's that is one of those things that's going to escalate the decline of the United States because we can no longer promise to our our longtime allies we're going to protect you. Uh, we yeah. will protect you from competing interests. And uh, yeah, because Japan's going to be right behind them. South Korea will be won't be long. Um, you know, and, and if if and, and that those those nations, which I'll refer to as client states of the United States is as uh, you know, they, they have a high degree of autonomy, but at the same time, their economies are all hinged upon trade with the West. Yeah. And if, if you, you know, we, we stood up, you know, all the industry of Japan in post-World War II, Samsung, Daewoo, uh, you know, Mitsubishi now, Mitsubishi he- Heavy Industries has now returned to uh, uh, wartime production. You know, th- this is all really, really important. Yeah. Um, I want to focus just a little bit on India because India is a, is, is a dynamic kind of a wild card in all this. And it's, it's something that I don't think anybody out there is paying careful enough attention to, you know, we know that, that India and China are at odds over the line of actual control. This is, you know, made the news past few years of, you know, their soldiers literally fighting it out hand to hand. Um, You know, the line of actual control is, is their border region, uh, to the north and, and the extreme south uh, west of China. And that's they they are traditionally two societies that do not like one another. However, it is dynamic for a number of reasons because China has been working with Pakistan. So get get ready for the soap opera here on the on the global stage. China's been working with Pakistan. Pakistan and India, traditional bad blood, Pakistan, India, both nuclear armed. A lot of thinkers out there who, who are very, very intelligent. Uh, David Kilcullen being one of them, saying that, that if, if there is to be a nuclear exchange in the world, these are the two countries that are going to do it. Um, and, and I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. And I think that it would be Pakistan before it would be India. India's more level-headed than that. Pakistan's a very volatile nation. Uh, which we need hours upon hours to even dive into. I'm very, very familiar with the, the politics of Pakistan. Intimately yeah. familiar with it. Uh, and, and the, the it's, it's Pakistan's a bizarre place. It, it, it really is. Um, it is. But, but China's been trading a lot of military equipment. They are standardized on the Beidou guidance system. Uh, this this is very, very important to understand for the, the audience out there. The Beidou guidance system is the Chinese answer to GPS, and it has been online. If, if you look at uh, Beidou on AmericanPartisan.org, you will find the frequency uplink and downlink. So the actual frequencies, the RF that, that they use, uh, which caused me a little bit of heartburn when I posted those up. Once upon a time, a few years ago, it instantly, I mean, it was almost instant. I was getting DDoS attacks and a bunch of weird stuff started happening uh, to the website. They were trying to shut us down right after that. Of course, we survived it. And, uh, you know, here we're still here. I'm still standing. Uh, anyway, but yeah, it, it's um, it, it, interesting stuff. But 
but they've been trading with Pakistan. Russia and China have never been closer in relations, but Russia also has close relations with India. India has been the source of a lot of the fuel. You know, of course, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve got nearly depleted due to uh, Biden's short-sighted, some people would say short-sighted, trade policies of selling it to China. Uh, Ooh, they, they want you to forget that one, but that happened. That happened. Look it up. And... India has been buying oil from Russia. Of course, we sanctioned Russia, but we were buying the oil from India. The oil was originally Russian. They're trading in gold and rubles, but they're also trading with the West. But they don't like China. China's buddies with Russia. Russia's buddies with India, so on and so forth. And it's just this game that's being played. And there's some people that have said uh, that, that this is a relationship that we need to further exploit to create divisions between uh, the the, uh, the government of Modi, who is uh, very much uh, make India great again. Uh, he ran on the platform of uh, Made in India, the Made in India initiative. That, that's literally what it's called. Um, and, you know, I, I've talked about the uh, AK-203 in the past, which is uh, the AK-103 with a few upgrades to it that's being made in India. And, and so they have strong, they have a very strong relationship with Russia. Um, there's some thinkers that, that say we need to drive a wedge in between that and we need to exploit their uh, animosity towards China because India could be a very strong ally, uh, both in the manufacturing sector and the economic sector. And then, of course, militarily following on that. Uh, you know, and, and you have Australia as, as part of um, uh, the ARCUS agreement that is a critical part of that as well, bolstering our capabilities in the Pacific as well as the Indian Ocean, which would serve as, as a buffer to Chinese hegemony. Where do you see them in all this? Yeah, I see them as um, intentionally... Um, I see them as being very intentional about playing every side that exists for their own benefit. That's where I see India. India is not diametrically opposed to anyone except Pakistan, of course. Um, but out of those big three, out of Russia, China, and the U.S., they're not—they're not really opposed to any of them. Yes, they do not like Chinese aggression in the region. Yeah, there's a border dispute. That's a problem. But they're also very happy to be founding members of BRICS together uh, and they're very they're, they're fine with a, a lot of trade crossing those borders back and forth um i think that india's perspective is exactly what you said like make india great again right now they're going to buy russian oil if it is expedient and cheap and it is they're going to import from china if it makes sense to do so for themselves uh sometimes it is they're going to um work with the us and australia if it makes sense for india India is not one of these uh, countries like uh, like Russia and China that uh, want that they have these these major designs on the world. I, I think India is happy to be India and they want to be a regional power. Um, but but India is again outside of Pakistan. <laughs> India is not looking to uh, go go out and start taking over all these other countries like Russia would love to do. And like China is probably going to try to do with Taiwan. 
So India is is all for India. And they don't really care if the US objects to India buying Russian oil. You know what? It's cheap and it's available. India has, I, I saw a thing a couple of weeks ago that showed that stockpiles of fuel in India of all types are basically completely full. They, they don't even have anywhere to put the oil anymore coming in from Russia. Uh, and, and so Russian oil sales have actually been declining the last couple of months because India simply doesn't have anywhere to put the stuff. They've imported so much of it. But you know what? It was cheap and it makes sense for India. And they're not going to get ideologically involved in some war in Eastern Europe. That's how far from India? They, they simply don't right. care. It doesn't affect them. Right. So for India to care about Ukraine uh, would be similar for Ukraine to care about Chad in Africa. Why would Ukraine has no interest in Chad? <laughs> right. Yeah. That, and that's, so a, India, that's a great India analogy. India has no interest in Ukraine either. And, and no. so, you know, you see the Western world and, and Europe kind of beating on India like, oh, you have to be against Russia like we are. And and, and India is like, look, it, if it's not our fight, it's not our fight. Right. And it's not. So, you know, Russia could be completely successful in Ukraine uh, and it wouldn't make any difference to India. It would change nothing the next day for India. It would change things for Europe, but it wouldn't for India. And so they're, they're simply saying, hey, war is war and it is what it is. And we're going to do what's best for us. So top line, that is India. <laughs> that's that's yeah. what India is. Um, and they're they're doing a lot of uh, domestic military production these days, a lot more than they used to. Uh, they used to import a lot more. Now they're they're uh, ramping up their internal defense industry. But again, I think it's because long term they see as much of the world does uh, a war in the Indo-Pacific as more or less inevitable because because of China's um, designs on that region and on the rest of the world. So, yeah, they're going to arm up and they're going to continue to do exercises and drills with the U.S. and things like that. Um, but ultimately, they're, they're really focused on self-defense and um, and uh, that type of thing than they are some uh, random military adventure in another country. Oh, I, I agree with that a, a thousand percent, man. They, they you know, uh, India has never been an empire. Uh, they have no interest in that. They, they've, you know, they certainly saw uh, under British rule, uh, under the British Raj, they, they certainly, it's, it's culturally that, that's not, that's not their thing. So I think you, you hit the nail on the head with that. Um, knocked that one out of the park. So that that brings us I've, back. I've got, I've got a really good analyst who does a lot of good work on India. So thank you. Yeah. But uh, yeah, everything yeah, I yeah. say, it's it's not me. I got a team. <laughs> so, hey, hey, and, dude, uh, it, that's you know, yeah. it, it, and uh, my familiarity with uh, you know my my contacts essentially from that part of the world and and that are familiar with that culture. I mean, they, they concur and that, that dovetails with everything that, that I know is they're, they're just not interested in it. Um, it yep. This is a zero sum game. You know, why, why are we going to project force outside of our own borders? This is silly. When we have our own problems here, we have, you know, we, we have to feed the second largest population of the world. Uh, we have to feed them. We have to beat back the Naxals, which, you know, are, are Maoist and have been supplied by China for how long? You know, right. we're worried about Pakistan nuking us, you know, and, and 
really the the um what goes on in Kashmir is much more important to them yes. long term. Uh, and, and maintaining their own internal hegemony is, is a big part of that. And that, of course, that led to the uh, conflict between the Indian government and the Sikhs uh, back in the, the 1980s. Uh, a lot of people will probably remember that, the, the bombings that the Sikhs carried out. And, and you know, the, the, which that conflict never really ended. Uh, they they kind of came to terms with it and it, it cooled down for a little bit, but it, it may kick back up. Kashmir is still very much... Uh, an inflection point between them and Pakistan. And, and that's, that's more um, the, you know, that the Tamil tigers in the South um, and, and of course the Naxals, the, the Naxals are, are a very, very uh, serious problem. And, and they've mostly got that handled. If you want to see a successful, as a little aside, if, if anybody out there wants to see a successful counterinsurgency model, the way India approached the Naxal problem is how you you conduct a counterinsurgency uh, and, and all the programs that they put in place uh, with that. And, and this, this is still an ongoing thing. I mean, but just in the, the late 90s into the 2000s, um, domestically, if you want to fight an insurgency, that's a great way to do it. How they did it, how they approached it with a, a really a three pronged strategy of the utilization of military force, a very specific type of military force and what they called grids. So they, they basically took the, the areas of the Naxals that where they were most active and basically created for like my, you know, the dot mill side guys, we created an ops box where th this is your area of operations. You're not going to go outside of this area. And this is essentially what they did, but they also looked at it from a governmental and a social perspective and said, how can we more effectively govern these people to bring their potential recruits into our fold and away from them? Like, why is it that they're drawn to Maoism when that's not really compatible with Indian society? With, with with so why are they being drawn to that um and then you know last why is it socially why is it that they're they're being motivated to fight against us and what they learned was is that most of it had to do with water the access to water and the access to fertilizer for the crops and when they figured that out those things a lot of the fighting stopped like you, you had your hardcore communists that continued to fight. You're always going to have that, but they weren't able to gain traction. And, and it was a very smart counterinsurgency model that, that they utilized. Um, I've, I've studied that one at length in, in case anybody was wondering, that's how I know quite a bit about that. I can uh, tell. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It does me absolutely no good uh, these days, other than talking about it on a podcast. Um, you know, what's, what's the social conditions in India that lead to Maoism? Well, there you go. If you, if you dam up all the rivers and now all of a sudden people that, that were growing crops profitably can't do it anymore, well, that might be a good reason why. Uh, you know, you kind of, kind of tick off a certain population when you're doing that. But uh, going back to Ukraine, let's pivot back to Ukraine real quick uh, to round out the show. So, 
the leaking of these documents, which, you know, is, is all over social media now, probably everybody's gotten a gander at these things and, you know, whether or not they should have been classified, could have been classified, were classified, weren't classified, who cares? It doesn't matter. Uh, the fact is that, that they were out there. Uh, they shouldn't have been out there. They got out there. They're out there now. Um, the timing, I think, is very interesting. The reaction is even more interesting. Uh, the Washington Post had a, a story that was ready to go. Uh, of course, the, the leaker, unlike, unlike uh, Edward Snowden, who for a time, no longer, no longer, by the way, but for a time, was a hero to the left, to the anti-war left. Oh, we, we, we love Edward Snowden. He leaked secrets. And of course, we had Bradley Manning, who became Chelsea Manning, uh, who was a hero on the left as well. Uh, traitor, traitors to the nation. And yet the same people who are now flying Ukrainian flags were very much uh, in love with uh, these people that they saw as, as heroes uh, just one decade ago. Now, of course, the shoe's on the other foot. We have the, the leaker, a uh, 21-year-old Air National Guard member from uh, Massachusetts who's an intel analyst, uh, 21 years old intel analyst that had access uh, to uh, special access program documents. Seems a little suspect to me. Um you know, and, and I just speak as a, as a trigger puller um, who, you know, of course, you know, I had a clearance and, you know, but I didn't have an SCI clearance because they don't give those to people that don't require them. But even even when you have a uh, compartmentalization aspect to to your clearance, um, because you always do, you're not going to have access to certain things that are outside of your expertise. It's, that's not going to happen. Uh, unless their, their uh, uh, InfoSec manager is was just absolutely asleep at the job. I just don't see, it's just not likely to me. Uh, it, it, you know, but anyway, I don't, I don't want to dive too deep into that. There's just a lot of irregularities, but of course you have the Washington post. That's now, uh, they had a story ready to go. Oh, this guy, he's a white guy who is 21 years old. He runs a discord server with all these alt-right people. He's a gun guy. He's a member of the NRA. He's a checklist for all the bad things that the regime doesn't like. Oh boy, that's interesting. That's an interesting one. It, it just seems, all of it seems just a little too convenient to me. Um, yeah. Do I, you know, is this guy probably guilty of leaking classified material? Sure. I mean, I don't know. Um, I don't know. But it, all the other tidbits here just kind of. Yeah. I mean, anyway. you knew that you knew they were going to scoop him up because he put it on Discord. Discord oh. is not a secure, I don't care what Discord says. Discord reads <laughs> everything in Discord. Everything gets scanned. Everything gets right. saved. You got to use a phone half the time to authenticate yourself, right? I mean, they yeah. they they have some location data. Look, if you put something in Discord uh, and the authorities want to know who the heck put that in Discord, they're going to have that in about five minutes flat. So, yeah. you know, this guy was always going to get scooped up. We, we've been saying since this happened, they're, they're definitely going to get this guy and they're going to get him quick yep. <laughs> because it's discord. Like, you don't. Yeah. Come on. 
Um, well, and, and security is different things to different people, man. Yeah. You know, because it's Discord different. says it's secure. Yeah. Well, you know, that's it, that's that whole qualitative versus quantitative thing. Yeah, it is. Um, and Discord what, is encrypted. It's encrypted with massive backdoors. Like you could drive a truck through the backdoors in, in Discord. So, yeah. Um, I, I'll say this. I mean, did he do it? Did he not? Who knows? I, I can't verify one way or the other who put those documents in Discord. But I will say that um, the they scooped him up quick. Okay, fine. No big deal. It was Discord. Um, that's one aspect that I don't think is necessarily suspicious. Um, I think that it's interesting that um, once these leaks were made, uh, it's, it's a little too perfect, the timeline. Yeah. It's a little too perfect. So he's been putting these out there. Um, nobody apparently even knew about it because this started in January. Even the, the authorities didn't know about it until recently, um, until they started showing up you know, widespread on Telegram. Um, but then once but then once it made news everything went swimmingly right they they found him quick granted i expected that they found him quick um they scooped him up quick they had the news choppers there you know they had an fbi style a swat style raid ready to go um he surrendered immediately like he knew he knew the jig was up as soon as it hit mainstream media um but it's just like, you know, how are we so efficient with this one thing and, and then so inefficient with everything else? Right? We, we can't stop. We can't stop school shooters, even though they're known to the FBI. And, and mm. we can't stop. We couldn't stop Snowden worth a darn. He got all the way to Russia. No problem. And, and <laughs> it's like, OK, wait a minute. Time out. Um, how are we this yeah. good with this case and, and pretty darn bad? <laughs> for u.s everything domestic intelligence else. on everything else right everything else everything else. Like, and okay can you give me something on, on the vegas shooter now please anybody vegas shooter something well, right yeah. and you forgot so, about him already yeah yeah well you know he's the only person i've ever seen and i've seen i've seen several suicides mm-hmm. um unfortunately i i've mm-hmm witnessed a, a few and mm-hmm. he's the only person that I've ever seen in photographs or, or in person that's that's off themselves and threw the weapon behind them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just, but just, just a little large lie. scale, large scale. It's, it's, uh, you know, did he do it? Yeah. Fine. Let's just assume he did it. Should they scoop him up for doing it? Yeah. They should scoop him up if he's if he's throwing out top secret information. Uh, I'm sorry, you you have yeah. um, sworn an oath. Uh, you yeah. swore an oath, and if your oath means yeah, anything, then nail they're going to nail you, and they should nail you. Uh, yeah. you know they should they should scoop him up, and and they should um, you know do yeah. what needs to be done. Yeah, um, Snowden. So, I mean, e- even though like like with with. With what Snowden put out there, it, it was stuff yeah. that, that some of us in, in the alternative media, you know, in, in years since, is things that we've been we, we've been hammering home. Mm-hmm. Um, but should have nailed him. He's there. He's there for national security purposes. Right. And nail him. 
You know, Bradley yeah. Manning, nail him, nail him. All of them. You, you know, if if you're an outsider and you're whistleblowing on something that is criminal activity, all right, you know, but what you did, that talking about them, is, is criminal. This, this is criminal activity, right? And so what this guy did is criminal activity as well. You know, it, it, and, and you can oppose the actions that, that the United States government is taking right now and, and have grave concern for the trajectory we're on. I do. But yes. you, you do not do this. This, this, this which um, I, I've... And, and he's not some yeah. freedom fighter either. You know, hey, no, this oh, is no. rampant government corruption that I'm going to bring to light at the expense of my own life. Like, I'm going to go to jail the rest of my life, but I have to because this is so horrible that this, whatever this thing is that the United States government's doing, that I have to do it. Right. I mean, some people make that sacrifice intentionally. That this was, this was a, this is like a frat boy um, one upping folks in a Discord server. Yeah, I, I mean, come on. This guy is not a hero. He's he's not somebody. He's not he's not idealistic. No. He's just showing his buddies that that he knows his stuff. And oh, here's the proof. The proof is top secret or secret at least documents. Yikes! Twenty one year old idiot. I mean, yeah. the dude threw his life away for for Discord people scattered all around the world that he didn't even know. <laughs> Got that I mean, social clout. media clout, man. Man, I tell you, it's social just, media clout. And I hate it for him. I, I really do. Like this, this guy, you know, massive error in judgment, uh, multiple times <laughs> over the course of several months. Um, yeah. But they're they're gonna nail him, and uh, that's it for him. Um, yeah. I will tell you that um, I think some second order effects of this. I, I think that everyone in the world essentially knows that the U.S. spies on them, whether they're allies or not. And that was kind of revealed yep. again. Um, no big news there. But I do think that uh, one of the issues here is that after the Manning leaks and the Snowden leaks, there was this massive uh, reorganization inside the intelligence community. Um, readiness oh, yeah. was yeah. definitely I was, I was hurt. On the periphery of that. I mean, that, yeah. yeah. And so you're looking at a scenario where our readiness is going to be lowered. Um, our ability to wage war, should that be necessary, is going to be lowered for a period of time. Um, because everyone's going to go to and uh, to hell in a PowerPoint over the next couple of years, right? And uh, it's going to be it's going to be a rough time to be in the intelligence community or even in the military at any level with any kind of clearance. And um, all those processes are going to be reevaluated, et cetera, et cetera. So it is unfortunate that this happened at this time because you're in you're in a period of time where, um, like the story that just recently broke, a Russian pilot can. Uh, misunderstand uh, radar operator on the ground and shoot down a British aircraft with 30 people on board of the Black Sea. That almost happened, right? Yeah. Except the missile malfunction. That kind of thing is happening right now in the world. So anything that decreases our readiness uh, here in the United States is a really bad thing. It's a very negative thing that could have serious repercussions. And the effect of this leak is our readiness is going to be lower than it was just two weeks ago as all of these things yeah. are reevaluated, the focus is going to shift internally uh, until some suitable remedy or allegedly suitable remedy is found. Um, so, you know, the more oxygen this takes inside the intelligence community and the military is oxygen is taking away from what our efforts ought to be. Well, so I, I, I certainly think uh, second or third order effect out of this is they're going to start hammering guys with, 
I, I, let me let, let me just pretext this a little bit with the wrong political opinion. They're going to mm. weaponize this against conservatives for sure. The, 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 the Washington Post article already kind of telegraphed that. And, and um, you know, it is a little too perfect, a little too convenient. And the language was very, very telling. And so what I see happening is, is that, you know, right now, if you're talking, you know, owing to readiness, talking about uh, national security, our readiness posture and, and, and all of that. If you're in that world and you're exhibiting political wrong think, they're going to come for you. It's coming. That one is coming. And your digital exhaust is very, very interesting to someone. So if you don't understand the world in which that works and, you know, you're you're hanging out on Telegram with your, your Internet friends. Um, you know, or, or kind of running in, in uh, certain circles. You know, it, it, it's it's a word of caution, just as somebody who knows how that works and, and has seen it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's certainly a word of caution. Uh, they are going to use this as a tool for political compliance in the ranks. And that, to me, is, is very, very concerning, um, even more so for national readiness, because, you know, we already have a recruiting crisis. You know, the mm-hmm. Army can't can't meet its recruiting goals. It definitely is not going to meet its recruiting goals for this year. It, it's, that's not happening. And, you know, at the street level, in the ranks, um, it, at, you know, the, the I'll say the uh, our combat arms units are entry level into to special operations. Um they're they're not getting the numbers. Uh, they they are not getting the numbers that they need to replenish the those that they're losing, um, who are just getting out. And it's because there is this massive toxic environment that's been created, and this is going to make it that much more toxic. That that's the thing that that to me is is most concerning is that this is now a pretext. Oh, you you know, you're in uniform or you're you're you have privately owned firearms. Oh, now you have a clearance. Now we're going to comb your social media history. And they have the ability to do that. Okay, when when they audit your SF86, which is your your security clearance form, right? When they begin to do that and and they're going to see they that gives them broad authority under the UCMJ to comb your digital exhaust. A lot of things that you may or may not have known about yourself that is going to get found. And that's way beyond criminal records, right? Way beyond criminal records because they can look at every aspect of your life, including financial data. Financial data, in fact, that used to be the thing that would hang guys up. Um, that that they would, they got, you know, I mean, the, the reality is this, man, especially for, uh, you know, uh, mid-level NCOs and below. And I knew plenty of guys that got themselves in trouble with payday loans because you got to make ends meet somehow. And, and you know, they, they might've been living a little outside of their means. So they come back from deployment, end up running out of money. And cause you, you don't get paid very much. And so they end up getting hung up with payday loans and whatnot, uh, making bad financial decisions, bad life decisions, you know, married the wrong girl and she runs off with the kids and empties the bank account. Saw many, many such cases. Right. And 
now they get hung up with payday loans. Well, they're behind. They got to declare bankruptcy. You declare bankruptcy immediately. Your clearance is yanked. Well, you ain't got a clearance. You can't be here. Oh, you know, they they are going to use this as a pretext for political compliance, and they're going to use the security clearance process to um, to do that, to to enforce that. And that is, to me, that is extremely concerning. Looking at who we have in the halls of power, and I don't see it changing. Um, they demand political compliance above all else, and they want to crush that dissent as quickly as possible. And that's a very scary thing for me. and should be for everybody else because, as I said, uh, you know, I put out a tweet earlier today. Uh, in response to uh, my close friend, uh, the Virginia gentleman, uh, Mr. Stan, and uh, a couple other uh, notable individuals chimed in on that. That basically, the, the people that have made up the teeth of the combat arms over the past century, you know, good old boys, good old boys from every corner of the United States, every ethnicity that you can think of, but men, right? Men. Guys that, you know, that, that the left likes to call toxic masculinity. Guys that, you know, make off-color jokes that, you know, have, have worked blue-collar jobs before they came to the Army. Had a rough upbringing, man. You know, didn't didn't grow up with a silver spoon in their mouth. Had to, had to work hard for what they got. And th these are good old boys. And basically what the army is, is saying, I, I can speak for the army and it looks like this, this toxicity is certainly extended to the Navy. You know, the, the air force kind of, there's, there's like two, two different air forces. There's the special operations side of the air force and then there's the rest, you know, so I can't really speak for the air force, but the, you know, JTAC world, these dudes are squared away. Yeah, but this toxicity seems to be spreading. The Marine Corps is certainly not without its problems as well. And man, these guys are not. I remember, I like, I remember, you know, going through various schools and stuff and seeing these guys around me, you know, all blue collar backgrounds, tough dudes, man. These tough guys in your young 20s, you're not going to get talked down to by somebody they don't have any respect for. It just ain't happening. It's not happening, man. And that's why these guys aren't enlisted. They, they said, out of hell with this, because they all joined the Army, just like I did, you know, when, when you know, I was a young man when I went in. And you join the Army because you, 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 like, I went in the Army because I already, I felt like, you know, I've already reached kind of a, a certain plateau. What's the next step? What's the next step in, in manhood going to war? being a trigger puller like that's 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 an innate quality that men need that that warrior them and you know like that that was that was the outlet but they've they've broken that they've broken that and you don't you don't fix that once you corrupted that institution so i mean i, I know i'm kind of on a tangent there but this this political compliance I mean, that, that drill sergeant out of uh, Radford, Virginia that I talked about that, you know, was on there talking about, you know, she was going to go door to door disarming Americans, all this stuff. She turns out she's a drill sergeant, never been, uh, never been deployed, no combat patch. You know, just this is the only thing she's ever done with her career. She's in the Army Reserve. She's a, you know, LGBTQ, 
whatever uh, advocate. She's the unit uh, sharp and EO rep. And this is a drill sergeant. This is somebody who trains soldiers when they're coming in the army. Man, you ain't gonna listen to that shit. I, I mean, I you know, I just a little, little saltiness there. You ain't gonna let, you're gonna you're gonna take one look at that and say and, and her the thing is is that her profile picture on social media was her sitting down, sitting down. Never have I ever seen an instructor in a, a professional school, an in-service school none of them sit down on the ground. They never sat down, period, that, that I saw. They don't do that in front of their soldiers because it's unprofessional. But you don't sit down on the ground. She sits down on the ground. She's outdoors. She doesn't have her cover on, right? No, she, she's just nothing on her head. Well, she's outdoors, smoking a cigar in her uniform, which, you know, okay, that all right, fine, but you're sitting down. And her gear... Her chest rig was all loose and like the the uh, tightening straps are all hung out. She's not squared away. Never, 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 never. I mean, this is this is this is a outward symbol of the rot. She never should have ended up where she was. And so I I, I tell you all that to say this that the this this leak. Okay, no matter how uh, real it is, the veracity of it, we do know that that the classified materials definitely got out there. I definitely got out there. Now, whether or not they should have been, could have been, were, was, who knows, who cares? But they did get out there. We all laid eyes on it. A lot of us did. Um, and and of course, it didn't tell us anything that we didn't already know that you couldn't figure out on the OSINT side of things. But it is what it is. Um, but they're going to use this as a tool for political compliance. And it's, it's also going to further degrade their recruitment efforts because guys that, that are, are exactly the people that I described, those are the men that you go to war with. Those are your war fighters. Those are the guys, man, you want absolute savages to go to war. You know, you keep that nice, shiny, army and garrison, you know, that behaves and you don't have to have safety briefs for those guys. Like those ain't your war fighters, man. Like, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's, that's just a fact. I had a senior NCO tell me that one time that like, you know, uh, the, the army that you want to take to war is one that you cannot uh, allow to exist in garrison. And that's the paradox of a wartime army. He was right. I mean, he he was he knocked that one out of the park, man, because that that was true. Um, he's like, you know, expect as a leader of soldiers, expect that that the boys you take to war, when you get them back to garrison, you're going to be getting them out of jail. You're going to be doing chapter packets on them. And if you don't keep them in the field, they're, they're going to be an absolute nightmare for you. And it was true, man. It was a fact. But no, nah, I mean you, you're you're exactly right about uh, you know how this is impacting our our national readiness, and I think that uh, short term, Russia is absolutely going to exploit this. China is absolutely going to exploit this. Um, peer into your crystal ball real quick before we punch out. 
What do you think the ramifications for this big scale are going to be, we'll say, for the next 30 days? Well, I think that it's definitely going to change the situation in Ukraine a little bit. Um, Ukraine keeps saying that these documents were fake, but they're also saying they're amending their war plans. So a little bit of a uh, paradox there. Um, but, you know, Ukraine's amending war plans. I think Russia is, too. Um, I think that that's going to have a, an effect for sure. Uh, on the battlefield. Um, I think that both countries are now looking at uh, what they have said, orders they've issued, plans they've made, and they're, they're going to be questioning <laughs> whether or not uh, the U.S. has that and to what extent um, because of what some of these documents showed. Um, so you may see a bit of a pause in Ukraine. Uh, it, it's been kind of in that paused phase for a while anyway. There hasn't been, outside of Bakhmut, you haven't seen a lot of activity. Um, but you could see more of an extended pause as both uh, both countries involved in that conflict kind of recalibrate a little bit. Um, I think that uh, as far as I don't know that there's any direct effect necessarily on China or Taiwan. The, you know, these weren't really related. These documents weren't really related to them. But um, I, right. I could see there being a couple of weeks of pause in Ukraine for sure. Uh, and whatever was being planned, you know, plan B is probably on the table now uh, based upon that. Long term, I don't know that it's going to have any effect on the war in Ukraine, uh, you know, going out a year, for example. Um, but there's definitely going to be some short term reshuffling going on. I think there's there's no doubt about that. Um, I also think that, uh, you know, you're going to see amended versions floating around the Internet forever, um, as there already are amended versions that are out there. Um, so, you know, that's pretty much it, though, I think. I think there are more significant repercussions outside of Russia and Ukraine, like I mentioned earlier. But yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm anticipating over the next month or so. Likelihood of, we'll say, uh, a negotiated settlement over Crimea and a, a long-term de-escalation. Yeah, I think negotiated settlement's the only way to go here. I don't think that outside of nuclear use, which I do not think is on the table outside of one scenario that I'll talk about here in a sec. I don't think nuclear use is on the table in Ukraine um, in most circumstances. I don't think that Russia really can take all of Ukraine either. Um, I, I think that Ukraine is is standing firm a lot more than Russia thought they were going to. And I think that the West has provided a lot more intelligence, ISR, equipment. Yep. Uh, it's that type of thing to Ukraine than Russia thought they were going to as well. So I think Ukraine can hang in there um, and at least not lose the whole country. Right? I, I don't think, you know, I think they'll, they'll maintain the capital. I don't think Lviv is under threat. I don't think Odessa is under threat either, uh, at least not in the near term. Um, so you, you could see a lot more of the same. Um, as far as a counteroffensive, I think Ukraine could put forth a counteroffensive a few months into the future that'd be fairly successful. But here's the thing. And I, I've, we were telling our private clients this a year ago, our top scenario in which Russia uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine is if Ukraine successfully threatens Crimea. We have held that position since uh, a month into the war. You, Russia is not going to lose Crimea. Crimea is Russian as much as Moscow is at this point. Okay. It's not going to happen. And I know, I know Zelensky and others, they have to say for domestic consumption, that they're going to take back Crimea. I don't think they believe it when they say it. And I don't think anybody does. Um, and that was, and that's been our opinion long before 
all the the heavy entrenchment on Crimea and the dragon's teeth and the bunkers and everything else that Russia's built in Crimea and along the seashores and everything else uh, over the last few months. So don't see that happening. Simply don't see Ukraine taking Crimea back. As far as the rest of the territory that Russia holds, man, that remains to be seen. But eventually this thing is going to go to either a negotiated settlement uh, in which Ukraine does give up territory, um, or it's going to devolve into a slow grinding conflict with a lot fewer troops and a lot less equipment and things like that, almost like what you saw in Ukraine between Crimea and the most recent invasion, right? You kind of had this low grade conflict in the Donbass going on. I could see that dragging out for years. And I think Russia if Russia doesn't achieve their actual objectives of taking larger chunks of Ukraine, I think Russia is incentivized to make sure that there's at least some level of fighting because Secretary General of NATO Stoltenberg can't shut his mouth about Ukraine is going to join NATO after the conflict is over. He said it five or six times now. And every time he says that, I can just see the guys in Moscow saying, okay, well, then the war is never going to end. <laughs> right? Because yeah. Russia, if Ukraine joins NATO, that's an existential threat to Russia. And it's something that they will never stand for. That's not news, right? So every time Stoltenberg says Ukraine's joining NATO after the war, that just causes Russia to say, well, then the war will never end. So we may not see an official close to this war for a very, very long time. Um, so a lot of stalemates across the board. Um, you know, we track the, the, the front lines very closely um, at Knightsbridge. You see a lot of push back and forth, back and forth. Russia's being very careful not to get flanked. They got flanked uh, beautifully, I will say. Regardless of how you feel about the conflict, the Ukrainian yeah. flanking maneuvers on that counteroffensive last year were beautiful. Just perfect. Russia would get overextended. Ukraine would cut them off in behind. They would The ambushes were perfect, and they would just obliterate <laughs> Uh, you know, a hundred Russians at a time. And it was like the, I said, that, it, it, I mean, it was yeah. a thing of beauty. And so Russia's not doing that this time. They're pushing forward slowly, methodically. They're protecting their supply lines like they didn't do a year ago, things like right. that, which which means that it's it's all just at almost a grinding halt right now. And they were using it's hard to break out of that. Strategy. It, What's it, that? The Ukrainians were using the pocket strategy in, in reverse for the counteroffensive, where you yeah. essentially create... Uh, envelopments and you lay fire on the center of it. Um, so for, you know, everybody that's been to the scout course with me, teaching them the V ambush, it, that's essentially what it is on a larger scale um, with indirect fire as an aspect to it as well. And, and the Russians, uh, Ukraine learned that strategically because that's how the Russians were operating in uh, Syria, uh, they utilized that strategy uh, to, to dominate the Free Syrian Army on the ground, uh, along with uh, the Syrian forces uh, of Assad. And, and it was very successful for them, and they employed that strategy. Uh, once the, the mechanized invasion of Ukraine, of uh, eastern Ukraine, ground to a halt, this was uh, employed on them in reverse. And their forces really didn't the, the uh, most of their their uh, conscripted forces and now their uh, penal battalions, which make up Wagner, essentially. W Wagner is not to derail, but, but Wagner is 
the the equivalent, the Russian equivalent of of the old Soviet penal battalions, where they would uh, have imprisoned people for you know whatever. Just tell them you you know you you have no other value to us. Here's a rifle, you know, like you're, you're an expendable person at this point. And that's what they've done with Wagner. That, that's what it is. Uh, so this is nothing new for, for people that are familiar with the Eastern order of battle, or the Russian order of battle, the old Soviet order of battle. It's just a modern incarnation of it. Um, you know, they, they just like with everything else with the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union is they, they turned it, you know, they, they took what was previously a state owned and privatized it. And that's that's what Wagner Group is essentially. And of course, they have their special operations arm of it as well that deals with counterinsurgencies uh, very similar to uh, Z these days and Eric Prince and uh, some companies that, that we can name and you know, some that, that aren't necessarily publicly known uh, that, ex- that certainly exist out there. So uh, one last bit, you alluded to a possible nuclear scenario. Mm-hmm. What would that be? Yeah, I mean, outside of um, a misunderstanding leading to a much wider scale conflict in Europe, I I really believe that the only the only instance in which Russia is going to use nukes is if Ukraine's pushing towards Crimea in in a legitimately threatening way. And I think that in that scenario, Russia is willing to use tactical nukes just outside of Crimea, outside the neck of Crimea, if you will. Um, on those forces to to push them back and, and, and away from Crimea. I think at that point, Russia is, is going to see that uh, the, the same way as if Ukraine sent troops directly into Russian territory opposite Moscow. That's how they're going to see that. And so they're not giving up Crimea. Outside of that scenario, which I don't think is particularly likely, by the way, I mean, I think Ukraine could muster a massive counteroffensive right into the middle of the line and push toward Crimea. I don't necessarily think that they're going to actually threaten to take Crimea back. So this is not a you know high probability scenario. But should that happen, I, I think that Russia has no problem going to at least tactical nukes. And it would probably only take one <laughs> uh, just to show that they're going to do it. Right. And that that ends the counteroffensive right there. Um, just just showing that they're willing to use those types of weapons outside of that. I simply don't see it. The risk reward is not there for Russia. Um, you know, you. Russia's been ground to a halt um, primarily due to Western donations and Western advisors and Western intelligence assets and things like that in Ukraine. Um, not not belittling the Ukrainians that are fighting, but without all of that, Ukraine would have fallen last year pretty easily, I think. So, you know, the West is supporting Ukraine in a major way and keeping that that fight, that war alive. If Russia were to use uh, a tactical nuke on Kiev or something like that, um, I think you ain't seen nothing yet. Ukraine's getting yeah. everything they asked for. Ukraine's getting F-35s right, in that scenario. Yeah. They're getting it all. I mean, we've sent them, what, 18 HIMARS? We have 360. But what happens if you give Ukraine 100 of those things, right? And, and sufficient munitions to use them properly. What happens if you give Ukraine a bunch of F-35s and, and all these other assets that we have and NATO has we're just holding back on those things because we don't want this thing to spiral out of control. So the risk reward for Russia to go nuclear is heavily slanted in the risk direction. And then if they go, if they went full nuclear, popped every major city in Ukraine, for example, great, you've got yourself a wasteland that now you rule. 
And uh, that's not a lot of good to you either. You're not planting anything in those fields for a while there, boys, <laughs> right? So um, just from that perspective, I, I don't see nuclear use as really being on the table outside of Ukraine threatening Crimea. Yeah, I, I don't either. It, I, I don't see nuclear weapons being employed, even at the tactical level. And, and uh, that scenario is... The scenario you laid out is certainly a worst case one. Yes, uh, but I, I don't think that one is likely. Is uh, well, as like, far like as, I uh, like I yeah. said a couple of times, I don't think that that scenario is likely at all. Right. But I do think it's virtually the only scenario in which Russia resorts to nuclear weapons. But I'm not putting that as a high probability at all. This is that's a low probability scenario, at least over the next you know six to twelve months, because Ukraine. I simply don't think that Ukraine can adequately threaten Crimea, where Russia thinks the only way they're holding Crimea is to use a tactical nuke. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's a low probability. But it's also virtually uh, the only real scenario in which they would resort to that. So just to clarify, <laughs> we're not yeah. saying. No, no, no. I, I, I agree. Yeah. No, no, no. I agree. I, I agree completely. Um, but I, I think that that, that scenario, it, obviously, it's the worst case one. I don't think that that one is likely uh, because no U Ukraine. Uh, if Ukraine could project force to the degree that would be necessary for that situation to unfold, um, they they would be best served doing it elsewhere. Yes, um, and I again I I just don't see it. Um, you know I I think that. Uh, if they move to a negotiated settlement, the areas that are under Russia control, um, that's going to continue to be so, and, and they'll end up being annexed states. I, I do see that as a likely uh, outcome, at least short term. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, it, it we shall see. I, I don't, yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't, I this it the wild card for me is whether or not DC would allow a negotiated settlement and up until now it doesn't appear that they would uh they they have they have certainly they they have certainly made statements that they are not willing to uh they, they don't want the war to stop essentially well you know the interesting thing about that is that i, I don't think that we're willing to fund Ukraine and continue sending equipment and munitions over there forever, there will be a point in time where we're harming our own readiness. I don't think we've reached that point just yet. I think that you're starting to see that with some of the artillery stockpiles that are being drawn down, things like that. Um, and I think that there's an awareness within, especially the higher levels of the U.S. military, that, uh, hey, we're going to need to replenish those stockpiles pretty quickly with an eye to the Indo-Pacific. Um, right now, I think that there's there is something of a vested interest for NATO to see the war continue just because of, of how badly Russia is being ground down by it. I don't think that they would necessarily not allow a negotiated settlement, but at the same time, I, I think that NATO's okay with Russia uh, dashing itself upon this rock, if you want to call it that, and losing most of their good their T90 tanks, right? Uh, most of right. their T-80s, they're dipping into the T-60s series tanks at this point. Um, you know, they're pulling out some old gear 
to roll into Ukraine. Um, yeah. And, and you know, the sanctions are hurting them, their domestic industry, things like that. There, there is an effect here on Russia and it's largely very negative. So for NATO, you know, you can sit back and look at that and say, well, hey, if this war drags on a couple more years uh, and it costs Russia a lot of blood and it costs Russia a lot of treasure, well, yeah, it's doing the same to Ukraine to an extent, but it's not really hurting NATO at this juncture. It's not really hurting NATO, this war. Um, and, and so, hey, you know, some of these countries are donating uh, equipment to Ukraine and the EU, for example, is compensating them for it. Or they're turning around and they're buying brand new stuff from the U.S. Hey, this is all a net positive, right? So I don't know that they would um, reject a legitimate peace plan over that. But at the same time, if it drags on for a while, yeah, it's not the worst case scenario for NATO. <laughs> Plus, NATO's growing. Just added Finland, probably going to add Sweden at some point. That's a net positive for NATO, too. As long as Russia doesn't shoot down a, a rivet joint over the Black Sea, <laughs> right? Like they almost Ooh. did. As long as something like that doesn't happen, it spirals out of control, then okay, let it run for a while. I, I think there's a lot of people that would never say that openly, but that truly do believe that. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, they absolutely do. I, I mean, I would say that Lloyd Austin has made statements just coming shy of stating that. Um, yeah. They, you know, John Kirby has as well. And of course, these are two uh, well seasoned flag officers, uh, Kirby being a retired admiral. Uh, you know, Lloyd Austin being a retired general and, of course, taking up their lucrative positions in, in governance as well as uh, uh, certain boards of, of uh, executive level positions of privilege in uh, defense industries, uh, you know, Raytheon being a very notable one. And they, there's obviously an economic interest because stuff is a big business. Uh, war is a business. As Smedley Butler would say, war is a racket. Uh, and he, of course, wasn't wrong. Brother, it is always a wonderful, wonderful episode uh, to, to get you on here. You're just full of the, a lot of incredible knowledge. Where can people find you? Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always awesome to be here with you. Um, Knightsbridge.ltd is the website. We uh, provide quite a few services for our private clients. That's That's been our heavy area of focus for years now. Um, but we also have a public facing service, which is our global hotspot report. It goes out Monday through Friday. We monitor uh, not just uh, the U.S. and uh, you know Russia, Ukraine. We also monitor Latin America, Middle East, Africa, Canada, Indo-Pacific, you name it, we uh, keep an eye on that. And so we send this report out uh, every day, Monday through Friday, to subscribers where it's it's an all-risk report, an all-risk assessment, if you want to think about that way, of where are the global hotspots, where is risk, uh, and what should you know about what's happening in the world? Where are the winds blowing in Pakistan and Brazil, not just where are the winds blowing in Ukraine, for example? Um, so we cover all of that. And then we offer a once a week briefing as well, where you can ask us questions live, anything you'd like to ask, we're there for you. So, uh, but yeah, knightsbridge.ltd is the website and uh, kbr underscore intel on Twitter. 
uh, either of those places you can find us. And uh, the coupon code SCOUT will still get you a free 30 days. So, bam, check us out. Coupon code SCOUT. I know the <laughs> last time we did this podcast, there was a lot of people that took you up on that. That's right. Uh, a lot of happy folks. That's a lot right. of happy folks, man. Absolutely. It's, and I'm, I'm proud to say that we've, we've just exploded. Our subscriber base has absolutely exploded over the past. We haven't, we've only been releasing public services for a few months now. Um, but happy to say our retention rate is almost a hundred percent. Wow. Uh, which is why we're very wow. happy giving out a free 30 days because folks Heck sign yeah. up and they realize the value and that no one else is doing what we do. And, and yeah, they, they hang out with us for a while. I think our retention rates over 97% over the last six months. So yeah, come join us. That is smoking. <laughs> that is like it, from a business perspective, if you have that high degree of, of a customer retention rate, that mm -hmm. is smoking, man. Yeah. We, it's a lot higher wow. than we thought it was going to be for sure. Um, yeah. But we're, we're super happy yeah. about it. And I think it just, you know, we had a lot of validation for what we do from our private clients for years, right? Um, you, you can go look at the endorsements that we have, for example. Um, their, their names, everyone knows, right? That the types yeah. of folks who are endorsing our services from the private side, uh, which kind of led us to say, well, we should be releasing some of this out to the public. Um, but we did not yeah. expect the, the uh, overwhelming response that we've gotten, nor did we expect a retention rate like that. So I think it just, it just validates again that, uh, that, uh, what we're doing is is worth it and we're super happy that we can um, bring private intelligence and our our very significant uh intelligence and research apparatus into the public sphere so yeah man hey you know you guys are you guys are doing solid work man solid work and i'm glad to have you on and and you know your your knowledge and perspective of uh you know the the events of, of everything that's going on giving us that that global picture is so critically important man and, and just having you on is, is such a great blessing uh so for all the folks out there again that promo code is scout at the checkout definitely go show them some love and while you're at it brushbeater.store brushbeater.store everything over there is uh currently in stock i got a few things that are going to be uh coming online in the next couple of weeks that i'm really really excited to be offering the public um some stuff that you know about some things that you don't know about and uh we've got a lot of products that are going to be coming in as well so definitely uh, pay a visit over at brushbeater die store matt williams knights bridge research brother thank you for being with us god bless God bless. Always a pleasure. All right, folks. Zensi Scout out.